You are now listening to In Conversation with Mr. O, the podcast dedicated to machinery and equipment maintenance, reliability, and operations. It is presented by MRO Magazine, Canada's industry voice for maintenance and asset managers since 1985. I'm your host, Mario Suwinski, editor of MRO Magazine. Our guest today is Doc Palmer, who has over 30 years of industrial experience, primarily as a practitioner within the maintenance department of the Jacksonville Electric Authority. He was responsible for overhauling the existing maintenance planning organization, of which the results played a role in expanding planning to all crafts and stations at the utility. Doc authored the Maintenance Planning and Scheduling Handbook in 1999, which is now in its fourth edition. He has also delivered numerous maintenance articles, including many scheduling and planning articles for MRO Magazine, as well as doing presentations for the industry. Currently, he provides guidance, mentoring, and training for companies internationally that are looking for maintenance planning success. He is a registered professional engineer with a master's degree in business administration. He's also a certified maintenance and reliability professional. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation with Mr. O. Today we'll be looking at how to put focus on scheduling and planning of maintenance. Thank you for joining us on In Conversation with Mr. O today, Doc. First, can you tell our listeners about your background and expertise? I'd be glad to, and thank you for inviting me uh, to talk to your group. I'm a chemical engineer from Georgia Tech, and uh, working with the electric company in Florida, I got my master's in business degree at night, and I got involved in maintenance. And in the early 90s, if you're an engineer and you're involved in maintenance, um, usually it's because you made somebody mad at you or you're not very bright. And that was the uh, industry wisdom. But maintenance is where the money is. Engineers um, build these things that have to work for 30 and 40 years. And that, that's where the maintenance and operations group come in. So I was blessed to uh, be involved in maintenance. And We'd already been doing uh, maintenance planning for 10 years uh, when I got involved in in maintenance. And my task was to try to get it working. And we we just hated it. It was like a waste of a good mechanic to be a planner, but we weren't allowed to stop. And there wasn't anything written on it. There weren't any magazine articles or books or anything. And when I talked to other companies, I would talk to the management groups and the management groups would say, yeah, we're doing maintenance planning. And I was like, well, what does a planner do? And I just get this deer in the headlights look. Like, well, will they plan? Like, don't you get this? And I said, well, well, how do they plan? Will, will they use the computer? Well, what do they do on the computer? Well, doc, they plan. Don't you get this? And I just, but when I talk to the crafts at their plants, it's like, yeah, it's a big waste of time, but we're not allowed to stop. So why are we doing this thing if it's not helpful? So back at my company, um, large electric plant, for an electric utility in Florida, Jacksonville Electric Authority, we just fumbled for a couple of years. And then suddenly we hit on a couple of concepts that really made it work. And it was like the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we drained a backlog that consisted of two large filing cabinets just overflowing with work orders. It wasn't a two-year-old backlog, but it had a lot of work orders in there that were two years old. And in six weeks, we cleared that backlog and we did all that work. And it wasn't by throwing away work orders. It was doing the work. And so just to raise my stock at my own company, I thought I would write a magazine article. And I write this magazine article, A Day in the Life of a Maintenance Planner. This um, person gets up, makes a pot of coffee, goes to work, they make another pot of coffee, 
They look at new work requests, notifications, uh, sticky notes, phone calls, and they do their thing. And then at the end of the day, they're walking out to the parking lot thinking what a great job they did. And I got calls from all over thanking me for what a, telling what a planner should be doing. And McGraw-Hill, that's the largest book publisher in the world, called me and said, how would you like to write a handbook? And I said, well, there should be a handbook. I said, well, Doc, you could write it. Well, what's involved in that? Well, Doc, you just put all your ideas together and, you know, squash it together in a story and give it to us. And we turn it into a book and McGraw-Hill makes a lot of money. And Doc, you get your name on the cover. So, you know, it sounds like one of these scam things. But I went to my boss, who is a vice president over all of our power plants. I was on his staff. He's the one who put me down in maintenance. And he said, Doc, we are so proud of you. Just do it on your own time. And so I was hoping I could do it as a JEA project. Um, but I thought it'd take about six months to write this book. It took five years. It took nine weeks of vacations and all my weekends. And I thought I could teach myself to type in five years, but it never happened. But I'm pretty good with two fingers. And even if the book had only sold two copies, one to me and one to my mom, it would have been worth it just to keep track of all these issues we had to deal with. But God just blessed this book, and it's been McGraw-Hill's best-selling handbook, the Maintenance Planning and Scheduling Handbook, um, the last 20 years. And it's in its fourth edition now. About every five years, I get to add new case studies about places where this has worked. You know, what worked for an electric company. I'm a chemical engineer, but I spent my whole career just boiling water at a power plant. But chemical plants, uh, refineries, food plants, uh, paint plants, uh, tire plants, Everybody has these same issues uh, because planning is about people and everybody has people in their plants. And so it's just been a blessing to me. And then MRO asked me to write for, for your magazine. And um, I just really appreciate that and being able to share. So 12 years ago, I actually took an early retirement. I had 25 years into the electric company. And even before that started, um, JEA allows engineers on their own time to go work with other companies, as long as we don't claim we're representing JEA. But I did that some on my vacation time, but then I got so many people calling me, um, Mr. Palmer, can we pay for you to come to Australia to talk to us? That I took an early retirement 12 years ago. So for the last 12 years, about twice a month, every other week I go to a different company and help share the joys of maintenance planning. And here I am on the the phone with you, and I really appreciate that. But that that's how I came about to write the book, and that's where I am today, just helping people with planning and scheduling. That sounds great. The book is a big part of it, but you are known as the expert in scheduling and planning sphere. Can you briefly outline a little more how you came to that? I, I think my master's degree um, was especially focused on organizational theory and marketing. I looked at our planners and Nobody wanted to be a planner. It was like uh, the most hated job at the plant. You had to make people be planners. And so I realized what we were doing is we were telling planners that they had to be perfect. And we had told all of our mechanics that they would never have to hunt for information anymore because they would have a job plan. And just my education and familiarity with Dr. Deming's work, Plan, Do, Check, Act, and the Deming Cycle, what we were doing was totally wrong. Dr. Deming was an American in the 1950s, and he went to American companies and 
said, if you would admit you're not perfect, you could get better. And they laughed at him. And so he went to Japan and helped create Toyota. And Toyota has just about put our automobile business out of business. We just don't know it yet. Primarily where it fits this circumstance is the purpose of what we're trying to do and the dimming cycle of continuous improvement. So what I redirected the planners to do was, look, your job is to give a head start. These craftspeople know how to work on things. If you could clarify the scope of the work order, if it's not clear, and just say, here's what I think we should do, and then let the craftspeople take it. And the craftspeople, you know, they were like 40, 50, 60 years old. They know how to work on most of our equipment. But a lot of them save information in their lockers. Like on this certain equipment here, it needs two gaskets and you can't use Teflon. And they write that kind of stuff down. That's the stuff we want on work orders where that comes back to the planners. And the planner's real job is to be a craft historian and record that information. And it looks like we're always working on something different, but we work on the same stuff year after year. So the planner's really job is the first time that job is, well, here's what the situation is. And I think you need a gasket. And the mechanic goes out there and figures out they need two gaskets. And they should write that down so that the next time we work on it, that we send the next mechanic out there with two gaskets, as simple as that. But the way we had set it up where planners were supposed to be perfect is the mechanic, when they realized they needed two gaskets, they would come fuss at the planner and make the planner go find out what the second gasket should be. And so planners were always getting fussed at that they didn't make the plan better. So so we straightened that out with the dimming cycle. And, and I recognized that. And then when we got into scheduling, we were trying to make these really precise schedules a week ahead of time. and there's just too much churn for that. So I just backed way off that where the schedule was just a simple batch of work. And that actually helped the supervisors because they did not have to dig through the entire backlog of work. They could just focus on a set batch of work. So those are the two big things. Scheduling is just a batch of work and planning is really running a dimming cycle. There's one other concept that made it work. And it's Parkinson's law. Cyril Parkinson in the 1950s wrote a magazine article, and he said that the amount of work assigned expands to fill the amount of time available. And what that means, if you don't give people enough work, the work you do give them will take all the time that they have available to do work. It sounds like a simple concept, but what we do in maintenance is we don't give ourselves enough work. Because when we do scheduling, we get concerned about completing the schedule, which is incorrect. Just like the purpose of planning is to get better every time we work on something, it's not to give mechanics a perfect job plan so they won't have any problems. The purpose of scheduling is not to complete the schedule. I mean, it's it's not the purpose not to complete the schedule, but completing the schedule is actually not the purpose of scheduling. The purpose of scheduling is to help us defeat Parkinson's law by if we don't give ourselves enough work, we won't get as much work done as we could get done. So Peter Drucker, another management guru from the 1950s, Deming's from the 50s, Drucker's from the 50s, and Parkinson is from the 50s. If you've ever heard of management by objective, MBO, you ought to know the purpose of what you're doing before you start doing something. We're going to go to the mall. Okay, let's get in the car. That we, We're going to the mall. That's our purpose. But most people get in the car and say, well, where do you want to go? That's a strange example, but 
Dr. Drucker says that 90% of the time, people don't know the objective of what they're trying to do. And that's especially true in, in scheduling because we think the purpose of scheduling is to complete the schedule. And because maintenance has cho- so much churn and so many things do happen in our plants that are unexpected just because you can't be perfect, we underschedule ourselves. So if you're only scheduling 70% of your capacity for the next week, Parkinson's law will set in and you won't get as much done as you should get done. Well, and it seems like, well, if you normally have 30% breakdown work, you should only schedule 70% of your resources. Then you'll have good schedule compliance and 70% of the work. But that's not what happens. If you only schedule 70% of the work and you take care of the reactive work plus the 70% of the work, you won't have completed as much work as you could have completed. So long story short, if you schedule 100% of your resources and you allow yourself to break the schedule so you only have about 60 or 70% schedule compliance, you'll still take care of all the reactive work, but your net result will be you will have completed more work than you normally complete. So that, that, that's kind of a strange way of looking at it, but you're more productive if you fully schedule yourself and then it's okay to break the schedule. So those were the two lessons we learned, the dimming cycle, for planning, planners don't have to be perfect, and we have to fully load schedules. Now that we got a little bit of your background and how you became to be the expert, can you tell me how important it is for scheduling and planning for companies? Yes. Uh, th- there's three great outcomes from planning um, and scheduling. Th- the most visible one is in about a month, two weeks to a month, you can get a 50% bump in work order completion rate. So if you're completing a thousand work orders a month, you can suddenly start completing 1,500 work orders a month. And that just doesn't seem real, but but it is real because this terrible thing called wrench time. And I'm not an advocate of doing wrench time studies, but when when they do these statistical studies uh, for people that are here at the plant working, I mean nobody's off on vacation and nobody's in training, but just the people that are available to work all day. When they do these statistical studies, on the average, only about 35% of the time, the craftspeople are actually working on something, such as pulling a wrench, helping somebody on a job, doing confined space, helping with lockout, tag out, or filling out paperwork. All the stuff we're willing to pay for. The other 65% of the time, They're going to the warehouse to get a part. Okay, well, that's work, but it's the job's not moving ahead. Yeah, I wish that the mechanic already had the part, uh, but we don't always have parts. So you you go to the storeroom, you get a part. You go to the tool room, you get a special tool. We check in in the morning. We have to walk to the job. We have to walk to the break room. Breaks. Um, uh, We walk to the lunchroom. We walk back. uh, We walk between jobs. We go get another assignment. And all those activities are part of doing work, but they're they're not moving jobs ahead. The part that's actually moving a job ahead, such as I'm in my mind thinking pulling a wrench, is only 35% of the time. But with the fully loaded schedules, that pops that up to um, 55% wrench time. So about half the time people are here, they're actually moving a job ahead. Well, that doesn't seem like a lot. Well, if you divide 55 by 35, 
you're now at 55% ranch time because you defeated Parkinson's law with fully loaded schedules that it's okay to break the schedule. That bumps you to 55% of the time. Well, 55 divided by 35 is equal to 1.57. That's a 57% improvement. And so the effect of that is you get 50% more work done. Um, and, and that just seems hard to believe. Why is everybody only at 35% wrench time? Well, well, the reason we're only at 35% wrench time is that's the point of feeling busy. The point of feeling busy is 35% wrench time. There's a feeling. Everybody has something to do. We're working on stuff. We're, we're going to the break room. We're going to the tool room. We're going to the parts room. We're going to our next job. We're busy. And if you're busy and operators are screaming a lot, we hire more people. If we're busy and somebody quits, but operators aren't screaming, it's really hard to rehire that person that quits because operators are not screaming. So over the years, we, we've kind of sized our maintenance force to take care of operations screaming and to keep everybody busy. But we can do that with only 35% range time. Well, does that mean we're overstaffed because we can get to 55%? No, it means uh, we're not doing the proactive work we need to be doing because nobody's screaming for that. Uh, case in point, I was at a, an alloys plant that makes the specialty metals, and the maintenance manager showed me this great predictive maintenance work where lube oil analysis had showed that this gearbox was probably going to have a catastrophic failure in about two months. I said, that's great. You got a two-month notice before a gearbox failed, so you could do something about it. He said, no, the operators weren't screaming for it, so we just let this work order sit around. And I've had this work order for six weeks, and yesterday this, this gearbox had a catastrophic failure, and now we're working on it. Somehow we find the time to work on stuff that breaks, but we don't do enough of that little stuff that keeps stuff from breaking. And operators also have a feeling for our pain level, where if they tell us about some little thing, we're not going to work on it anyways because we have our hands full of things that have broken. So the operators actually stop telling us about little things because those little things haven't broken. So suddenly we can start taking care of all that extra stuff because there's 50% extra resource. So going from good to great means doing 50% more work. That's pure proactive work. So let me get back to the benefit of that. If you have a, say a 30 person workforce and you get a 50% bump, that means you've gotten 15 people for free. So let's just say a loaded rate, which is probably reasonable of $50 an hour. You know, I hear 50 to $100 an hour American. So $50 times 15 people times, let's say about 2,000 hours a year. That's $1.5 million a year. But the industry rule of thumb is that every dollar you invest in an extra proactive maintenance activity is worth $10 on the bottom line. And that's because instead of greasing a bearing, you let the bearing break and you have collateral damage, and that's more expensive. So instead of letting the bearing break and having collateral damage, which affects your production line, we're just going to grease the bearing in time. We're going to fix the gearbox in time so we don't have a catastrophic problem. So the $1.5 million is worth $15 million a year. So 
because you got one planner for 30 people, you've added $15 million in profit. So there's a case that one planner is worth $15 million a year. So it's a, just a huge investment. Um, that's the immediate payback that you get about a month after you started because you now have enough work plans that you can schedule it. Going on, and you asked me about the benefit of planning and scheduling. The, the productivity part, doing extra proactive work, is a huge part. But the dimming effect kicks in in about six months to a year, where if you're working on things better, they should last longer. You've fixed it correctly. You've used the proper gasket. You've, if your equipment lasts twice as long, you can say you've cut your backlog or half or doubled your manpower, your labor resource, because things are lasting longer because you know how to work on them better. And then if you're using planning to properly collect and code work orders and stuff, engineers can make better decisions. If you go to management and say, I want $100,000 to replace a feed water heater, but I can't ever prove we've worked on it, well, good luck with that. That's not going to happen. But if your planners and your work management system are correctly coding work orders, you can tell Where's our biggest problem? Where our biggest problem is during the spring at our waterfront, on our fuel oil tanks with cathodic protection, you can correctly spend money to replace crummy equipment or run projects. And every dollar you invest in making a better engineering purchasing decision is worth $100 on the bottom line. And that's the industry rule of thumb. So it's a big advantage, a profit margin for doing planning and scheduling. But, but it's not really visible to us because everybody's busy and we're taking care of operations. We've got a good maintenance resource. So there's the profit for you. is a big deal in doing planning and scheduling right, but most people don't do it right because they tell planners to be perfect and they don't schedule enough work because they want to have good schedule compliance. Well, now that we uh, know the importance of scheduling and planning, can you briefly describe some basic scheduling and planning techniques? The techniques for planners themselves is that they should be helping direct the work management system. They're looking through the computer for new work requests. We'll start with the ones that are not emergencies. We don't plan those. Obviously, they go straight to the crafts. But generally, planners, you know, they'll get a work request. They'll, they'll see if they understand what the work request is talking about. Planners usually spend about two hours in the field and six hours in their cubicle or their office. I like to go out in a plant environment if I'm a planner and put my hands on the equipment. Is there anything unusual? You know, will it use scaffolding, a ladder, uh, insulation? And it might not be the valve that leak, that's leaking. It might be the pipe that's leaking and running over to the valve. So it, it's always a good idea to, to look at the equipment. Um, a lot of our smaller devices might not have a tag number, so they can maybe better describe exactly where the device is. They go back to their office. They look at the equipment history and a job plan that should be growing, a growing job plan, a living job plan in the computer. Or if it's a paper system, just the file on that asset. And they would look in there, okay, what have we done last time? Well, it looks like two gaskets and a 10-foot ladder. Okay, that makes sense. And, and they put the job plan together and send it out to the mechanic. Later, we want to get that back, that work order coming back to the planner. 
I'm 61 years old now. I'm slowly going to electronics. I've seen some great stuff with mobile maintenance where people are pushing stuff out to even craft cell phones and stuff working on stuff. And when I first heard that, I said, that's crazy, you know, reading technical manuals on a cell phone. But then I realized, you know, I read the news every day on my cell phone. And cell phones have gotten a little bigger than they used to be. But even work devices that have a bigger screen, um, there needs to be some way to flag the planner that there's feedback. So maybe the planner doesn't have to read, um, you know, 100 work orders that come back, but maybe there's five or 10 that are flagged. Planner needs to look at the feedback. Could be a checkbox, could be a status where planner needs to review it. And the planner looks at it and says, oh, okay, you used two gaskets this time and a longer ladder. And oh yeah, that's good information there. And, and they update the job plan in the computer. So that's typically much the planner's routine. They're, they're putting out head starts. They're looking for feedback to update growing job plans. On the scheduling side, the planner usually is the scheduler. The weekly schedule is the key here. There are other schedules in maintenance. I'm not talking about those. The, the yearly maintenance schedule is, that's keeping up with budgets, projects, contractors. Everybody does that fairly, fairly well. The uh, monthly look at maintenance is, are we keeping up with preventive maintenance? We normally do that fairly well. And then on the other side, the daily schedule Supervisors usually do that very well, getting people on the next job that needs to be done and coordinating lockout, tagout. The weekly schedule is what we miss. A lot of times we don't do a weekly schedule because we just count on supervisors keeping their people busy. That gives you 35% wrench time. The weekly schedule, if we make it really complicated, so we're trying to set expectations and do daily schedules a week ahead of time so we can have good coordination, Maintenance is too dynamic for that. That ends up 35% wrench time and a lot of supervisor time sucked up into revising schedules every day. The people that do a batch of work that's only 60%, that's not enough to defeat Parkinson's law. That gives you 35% wrench time. But if the scheduler, which is the planner on Friday morning, simply gets a batch of work that's 100% out of the backlog. And I'm thinking you've got 10 people, everybody's working a 40-hour week. Friday morning, the planner goes into the backlog, gets out 400 hours worth of work for the supervisor for the next week. That's about a Friday morning activity. So a planner can do three crews of 10 people each putting together a batch of work. And that doesn't take much time. But that batch of work that matches 100% is what drives productivity. So the techniques of planning are you just need a work management system with work orders so you can have that backlog. Planners are going through that Monday through Thursday, uh, giving head starts. Friday morning, they put a schedule together. Friday afternoon, they're already back to uh, planning up and updating work orders. Th those are the kind of techniques from a planning and scheduling standpoint. One, one of my best stories is uh, a guy named Bill. Um, last name is Eichenbauer. We called him Ike. I was doing the scheduling and really sharp guy, ex-Navy, um, he's like 55 years old and I'm 30 years old. And we, we hired him, retired from the Navy. He's a really good mechanic, promoted him to supervisor. And when we first promoted him, he came into my office and I said, how many people you got next week? Ten. Anybody on vacation or training? He said, no. Okay, stand right here. And 
I went to the backlog and I got out 400 hours worth of work and gave it to him. And his eyes got really big. And uh, I worked for a vice president, so he saluted me and went down to gangplank. And I could tell he wasn't happy. And he came back a couple of days later and said, Doc, I'll have to apologize to you. When I came into your office, I knew what my job was. My job is taking care of operations and keeping everybody on my crew busy. But when I took that batch of work down to the crew area and I spread it out on the, the crew table and I said, guys and gals, uh, this is our work to do next week. And Doc, a light bulb came on in my head. This is why we're here, to do this work. This is why I have 10 people. Now, if operations calls, we might not be able to get all this work done, but we're going to try to get this work done. And so that helped me realize why the fully loaded schedules worked. It's the same as in an outage. In an outage, we have a mission of work. And everybody worked real hard trying to get all that work done. But somehow we had missed our management by objective, Peter Drucker from the 50s. Supervisors thought their purpose was to take care of operations and keep everybody busy. Well, that's only 35% wrench time. The fully loaded schedule changed the purpose to this mission of work, but it's okay if we don't get it all done. So that mission, in mission mindset, the purpose of the supervisors try to complete a certain amount of work with a certain amount of people. That's what kicked it up to 55% uh, wrench time. The wrench time simply explains why that was possible, and so does Parkinson's law. We had not been giving ourselves enough work. So that kind of comes around to that, the, uh, the purpose of the scheduling there. Now, do you have any other stories, good or bad, from over the years? Yeah, this is just great. And it's all um, stories are usually about people, and this thing yeah. is just, just all about people. Uh, Jennifer Crowley at a chemical plant um, last year came up to me at a maintenance conference and said, Hey, Doc, remember me? And, you know, I'm really good with faces, but I meet a lot of people. I said, I, I know you. And she said, I'm Jennifer. Um, and I said, Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, she said, Well, you were at our plant earlier this year. She said, I know that. And she said, Well, the problem you said we would experience after you left happened. I said, I feel bad. He's like, well, okay, so they had a problem after I left. And I said, well, what was your problem? She said, well, about six weeks after you left, we ran out of work orders. It was just perfect because our, our operators have this sense of what they should tell us about, and, and we generate PMs and stuff. So the backlog's kind of consistent because if the operators tell us about too much stuff, we won't do it anyways. But as soon as you kick your work order completion rate up 50%, in a couple of months, you're going to run out of work orders. Doesn't mean we're overstaffed. means we're not as good as generating work orders. Uh, another company, um, Cincinnati Municipal um, Sewer District, great company. They had me come up there with Max Smith, RCM, and Jack Nicholas, not the golfer, to do uh, predictive maintenance. Before we even started, they said, Doc, we believe you. We're going to improve our productivity. We're going to take five people out of maintenance and create a predictive maintenance team to generate proactive work. So, Doc, we're already behind, and now we're further behind, and you need to come in and help us kick our productivity. So we went in. We started doing the fully loaded schedules. We kicked up the productivity. We did all the proactive work. And Cincinnati actually won an industry award for one of the, the best new maintenance programs to come around. So 
stuff like that. Um, Arch Cole, Randy Pfizer manager, was in a workshop that I did. It's all about scheduling. Because if you don't do the scheduling, you don't go get the productivity bump. But there's really no such thing as schedules. In our mind, somehow we have this concept of a schedule should be a day-by-day, what we're going to do every hour the next week. That's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to give ourselves a batch of work. So get the word schedule out of your mind. It's just a batch of work. And and then Randy Pfizer spoke up and said, well, Doc, when you talk about daily scheduling, aren't you just talking about supervisors handing out the work orders? Well, yeah, you're right. So it's all about scheduling, but there's no such thing as weekly scheduling or daily scheduling. We just want to start off supervisors with a batch of work and, and let supervisors hand out the work orders as they go through the week, coordinate lockout, tag out. And that seems very unsophisticated, but but I think in scheduling, we'd gone past the point of diminishing returns there. Just one more story on that. Um, Shelly Whitener, I worked with, with her company in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She actually did a presentation at a maintenance conference about the big improvement we made. And she mentioned the story, The Princess Bride. In the movie, The Princess Bride, this entire movie, this guy uses this word. It's inconceivable. That's inconceivable. No matter what the situation is, he says, inconceivable. And at the very end of the movie, his best friend pulls him aside and says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. He's just an all-purpose word. And Shelley said, we thought we knew what the word scheduling meant, but we didn't. And and when we corrected our thinking, hey, just a batch of work is okay. We we made the big improvement in productivity and that pushed their wrench time up too. I'm not an advocate of doing wrench time studies. Um, Usually if you see a pop in work order completion rate, it means you're doing it right. So why do a wrench time study and make everybody nervous? But her, her company had actually done wrench time studies before and after, and that ex- better explains why you got a productivity bump. That's actually funny because my wife's favorite movie is The Princess Bride, so she always yeah, uh, yeah. says, says <laughs> quote, quotes from that movie to me all the time. So <laughs> That's inconceivable, Mario. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So we know that technology is all around us and it is changing all aspects of maintenance. How do you see IIoT changing how scheduling and planning is done going forward? You know, the computer is a great tool. It really speeds up stuff. But you can do something wrong a lot faster with a computer. You have to understand the purpose of planning and scheduling before you can computerize it. And Most people, they don't understand purpose. So they're using the computer to make really complicated schedules rather than just do the backlog research for a batch of work. Um, So I think a lot of us are doing that wrong, but I just see great potential for uh, pushing out work orders to people, getting information, uh, sharing feedback. I think it's going to be a big deal. Work order analysis, where's our biggest problems? And I've seen some good things with mobile maintenance. So I'm really encouraged by that. But I think the biggest thing is to start with the purpose of planning and scheduling. And the purpose of planning is to run the dimming cycle to get better. Of course, that means collecting feedback. And then the secondary purpose of planning is to support scheduling because we need the estimate of the hours. And then the purpose of scheduling is to make sure we give enough work at the beginning of the week. I don't think we're going to take out the dynamic nature of maintenance if you say a job's going to take five hours, that's just a, a guess because 
how do you know the slowest or the fastest person doesn't get that work order? How do you know your estimate of the job was perfect? How do you know that that job's not going to be assigned to a, a really knowledgeable person or a person that's not quite as knowledgeable? We'll get better at working and stuff, but I think we're trying to take all the churn out of maintenance. And I don't, I'm not sure if that's the right objective of the electronic stuff. Similar to that vein, how do you think that companies can improve their scheduling and planning? The the handbook, the purpose is all about chapter one. Um, chapter two has the six principles of planning and chapter three has the six principles of scheduling. You have to protect the planners. People don't understand planning. They start grabbing planners for other stuff. Planners need to understand they're not perfect and they're running a dimming cycle. The third principle is they need to be making these living job plans that grow over time. There's a place in the computer to do that, make these living job plans. They can't get bogged down in making perfect estimates. They need to put make detailed job plans subject to the constraint. They have to plan all the work. And that's a tricky one. How detailed should a job plan be? Well, as detailed as possible, subject to the constraint, you have to plan all the work. So as we're making better job plans over the years, you have to trust the skill of the crafts. The last principle was just the concept of wrench time, which we don't have to do wrench time studies. Scheduling, you need the job plans, can need the estimates. You need a credible priority system. You want to do it a week at a time. You want to fully load the schedules 100%. You want to let the supervisors alone, let them do daily scheduling, however they want to do it. And then finally, you want to measure schedule compliance, not because you want 100% schedule compliance. You actually want between 40 and 90%. If you have over 90% scheduling compliance of what you actually completed, it means you didn't give your crew enough work. So the schedule compliance is actually a check to see if you gave your crew enough work. And then one story around that, um, in Texas, a water system, Joel Nickerson, they gave their supervisor a fully loaded schedule, and schedule compliance was only 25%. Well, that's below 40, so it means we're not really paying attention to the schedule. So so, so he went out and he talked to the supervisor, hey, what are you doing with the schedule we gave you? And he said, well, I just put it over here on top of my filing cabinet. No, 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 you're supposed to use that schedule to help you assign work during the week. Oh, well, I know how to keep everybody busy. I know that you're doing a great job, but I want you to use that schedule to help assign work a little bit. Okay. So after that, their schedule compliance was 50%, which is where it should be, between 40 and 90%. Over 90, you're lying. Under 40, you're not trying. So it was 50%. But their work order completion rate went from seven work orders per person every week to 10. Well, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. But going from seven work orders to 10 is a 40% bump in work order completion rate. So they got the equivalent of as if they had hired 40% more people. And every extra work order that you do that you would not have normally done is proactive work because we always do all the reactive work. So they got a 40% bump in work order completion rate of purely proactive work. So. Now, looking at the other side of things, what do you see as one of the main reasons why companies neglect scheduling and planning, and how has that improved? It's just so subtle. Um, everybody's busy from good to great. That was the Collins, Collins book. We're good companies. Uh, we're making money. Uh, we've got rules in place to keep us from doing stupid stuff, but that inhibits change. And you don't want to change and do something stupid and 
it just really sounds strange. This whole planning thing. That's was the dimming thing. That's why they laughed at him. You have to admit you're not perfect and you're not as good as you can be. We're going to do job plans, but they won't be perfect. Uh, well, that doesn't sound right. I thought we did planners so craftspeople would have perfect job plans. No, you can't be perfect. And on the scheduling side, what do you mean we're not productive? When I had three mechanical supervisors, and when I started giving them fully loaded schedules, they would tell me how stupid I was. Doc, why do you give us so much work? Well, you know, I had 30, they were 30 mechanics, so it was 1,200 hours worth of work. I said, well, you said you had 30 people. Well, I know, but we won't get it all done because things will happen next week. Well, Doc, it's, things are going to happen next week. I said, well, it's okay to break the schedule. Well, Doc, if it's so okay to break the schedule, why do you give more work than we can do? Because you know we're going to break the schedule. Well, this will help you be more productive than you normally are. Well, Doc, are you saying we're not productive? No, I know you're busy, but this will help you be more productive. So it, it just doesn't sound right. We trust our supervisors. They take care of us. Uh, it, it's just a strange thing. Um, that That's why we, we don't normally do it. So, so this is a management-driven program. And we need to be very careful how we deal with our supervisors. Um, there's a lot of trigger words. Chapter 13 is how to sell maintenance planning to your own group. Um, the word planner is a bad word. I try to say planner craft historian. The word planner makes it sound like you're telling people how to do their job and that you can give them a perfect plan. That's not what we're doing. The word schedule is a bad word. It sounds like you're going to drive a schedule down their throat and you don't trust them to hand out work orders. I call it, I try to call the scheduling backlog research. Look, we're going to let the scheduler dig through the backlog, come up with a batch of work that makes sense for next week. So we can batch work orders together. If you're going to work on this, is there anything else you can do? Be really careful with this. You have to tell people it's okay to break the schedule. So it's a management-driven program. That's why we don't normally do it. We have to be very careful with our craft people because we are doing a good job. We do have good plans, but we don't want to be a good plan. We want to be a great plan. Uh, good plants make money, but they attract competition. We want to be so good. We want to be great where we discourage competition. So planning and sketching helps us do that. Uh, this is the productivity part of maintenance. I go to some companies, they don't have anything to produce proactive work with. They don't do any predictive maintenance. They don't have any PM programs. That can help them do more work, but they're just going to run out of work orders. So this is the productivity piece. It's not the silver bullet. You still need the parts in your workforce that generate the proactive work. Well, what would you say are some of the do's and don'ts of scheduling and planning? Don't let the supervisors vote whether we want to do this or not. I mean, this is a good idea. Don't wade into this thinking everybody's going to think it's a great idea. Listen a lot. Be very careful. Have a definite understanding of dimming and Parkinson's law. But but this is a big deal. It's a big deal. There's a great opportunity there because it's not very obvious and it's very subtle. I did want to mention about the COVID virus right now. Um, as we speak, it's early in the year 2020. We're in May now. We're going to see a lot of new hygiene restrictions in our workforce. Uh, we're going to be having to go slower and cleaner, which is a good thing. We're going to have social distancing. That's going to put constraints on our workforce. And we might, we don't know if we will or we won't, we might have a lot of absences from illness as we go forward if the virus ends up being a continuing problem. So just think of this. If you have a 30-person workforce, normally planning and scheduling could kick you up to 45 or 47 people. But if you have a 30-person workforce 
and we're crippled back to 20 people because of the virus, the extra hygiene and constraints on our working safely, the planning and scheduling can kick us up to 30% because you've got the effective 20-person workforce. If you do the planning and scheduling right, you get a 20%, you get a 50% bump. So that takes you back to the 30 people. So we can continue at our current levels, even with the virus constraints. And then also with the knowledge that planners are collecting, you might have some people that are not here because they're absent because of illness. We want to collect their knowledge in these growing job plans over the years. Great. Thank you very much for that insight. My last question would be, do you have any tips that you sort of live by when it comes to scheduling and planning? Planning's easy if you just understand the dimming cycle. Scheduling is very political and it's more difficult. It's got to be management driven. Be very careful with your supervisors. They're the keepers of the culture in our plants. They've gotten to those positions because they're great people. Be very compassionate with them, but be very forceful. This We are going to do this, the uh, fully loaded schedules. Watch out for the trigger words, schedule. Don't make it sound like we're driving a schedule down their throat. It's just a batch of work. It's the fruits of backlog research. I guess other than the word scheduling, yet that's the probably the worst word we can use. So it's going to take persistency. This this planning and scheduling done correctly is so unusual. Even though it's it's not wrong, it is unusual. We it takes persistency. If if you turn your back on this program as a manager, in six months it'll be gone. I've worked with companies where they, they got the big bump in productivity. And after a while, someone said, you know, we really know how to assign work orders. We really don't need to give you, you to give us a batch of work every week. And they, they just stopped the scheduling. So it, it's problem control. Manager job is fivefold. Plan, organize, staff, direct, and control. The control is a big part here. We'll put this thing in place, and, and it takes management to keep it going throughout the years. And that's a manager's job, not to put something in place and walk away. Do you think there's anything that we haven't discussed yet that you want to talk about? No, but but I do want to say that uh, I really enjoy MRO. Uh, I've enjoyed working with you and and appreciate the opportunity to share. And and going with the dimming cycle and learning, my book's in the fourth edition because I keep learning stuff. I'd say things slightly differently. I've learned the value of the trigger words. I've I've learned how bad a word scheduling is, and I'm growing. Uh, I love people to send me their stories and ideas and stuff so I can continue to grow. So, so I, I also thank your audience for participating and, and giving us the feedback we need to become better so we can help them more. So that, that's the dimming cycle. MRO Magazine, sharing information. Well, we appreciate your writing for MRO. The, the articles are great. Thank you very much, Doc, for coming on In Conversation with Mr. O. Uh, That was a lot of great information for our listeners to take in and use for their own scheduling and planning needs. But we can't say scheduling and planning. We've got to use other terms. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A planner is really a craft historian and a scheduler is really a backlog researcher. So I need to change the name of my book. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you very much, Doc. Thanks. Y'all take care. 